welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Tin Mama U, a Myanmar-born activist living in New Zealand. She, along with her family, left Myanmar for Thailand amid civil unrest during the 1988 uprising. They became recognized as political refugees through her father, and the family was chosen to resettle in New Zealand in 2000. Tin Mama U has continued to work hard to advocate for democracy in Myanmar, working tirelessly with the Democracy for Myanmar Working Group in New Zealand. Here she talks about the role the international community needs to play in Myanmar's story, the gap yet to be bridged between different generations of activists as well as ethnic groups within Myanmar, and the work that the Democracy for Myanmar Working Group continue to do in trying to bring about fundamental change in the fight for Myanmar's freedom. Let's start the conversation. Today we're joined by Tin Mama U from New Zealand, who is heavily involved in campaigning for Myanmar and democracy for Myanmar. It would be great if you could introduce yourself and maybe let our listeners know a little bit about you and your background so they can get a sense of who you are. All right. Hello, Ruth and um, Suzanne. Lovely to have this opportunity to talk to you both. Thank you for introducing me. Yes, my name is Tin Mama U, originally from Myanmar. My parents were political refugees back in the 80s, so we became refugees and resettled in New Zealand. Uh, we arrived here in year 2000, and I was 13-year-old uh, when we arrived. And, and I guess with that background, politics, human rights, and democracy has always been the topic within the family and our desire to see our home country uh, living in peace and that our people are living in harmony, safe and protected by the, the country leader. And so all my life, it, it's always, you know, wondering why have I become a refugee? Because, you know, being a refugee, the title itself is not something to be a proud of or uh, there is a, a stigma that attached to the title refugee. And so there's always this feeling of emptiness or betrayed growing up is why am I denied to live in my own country and having to seek refuge in the country of others. So with that curiosity, I went on and studied political science and international relations in New Zealand, uh, which I'm now currently writing a master thesis um, on responsibility to protect. I did my first year of master's, you know, about 10 years ago, and then I couldn't find any more passion or desire in politics. And so then I went on and um, doing refugees and humanitarian stuff. But when the coup happened on 1st February 21, all of the childhood trauma and the curiosities kicked right back in. Um, which make me really want to understand more about the responsibilities of the global civil society, especially the United Nations. So that's what leads me to do my master thesis now. It's about understanding the theory of responsibility to protect and where we are at as an international community. Uh, when the situation like Myanmar, the military use, you know, power and, um, violence to overthrow democratically elected government. In the modern world, I think it's utterly unacceptable. But my everyday life, as I analyzed into the situation, I felt somehow as the global civil society, yeah, not as proactive as they used to be, you know, in the 80s or the 90s, where you can see more global involvement and people are really concerned about the well-being of another country. But based on what I am seeing right now in the international politics, there's a lot of lip service, a lot of uh, ineffective sanctions. Uh, there's a lot of, we stand in principles. Um, you know, there's a lot of diplomatic talk. One year on after the revolution, 
still nothing concrete has been implemented to save the lives of mm. Myanmar people. So I'm hugely disappointed and grieving really at the moment. But nevertheless, you know, I, I can see the solidarity from people like yourselves who love and care about Myanmar people and want to see the best in our country. And um, there are other civil society who really stood by us uh, in full force and doing their best advocating what we puzzled to understand is that in Myanmar's history, this revolution is one of the biggest and the most united revolution when the whole country united as one fight against a military dictatorship and demand for the eliminations of military rulership in Myanmar. But it, it seems that... Um, the world is not really hearing the voices of the Myanmar people because there is still an ongoing discussions and diplomacy talk and the military junta is still being invited into, you know, the ASEAN meeting. So with all of those in mind, sometimes it can be a little bit soul-crushing for the people of Myanmar. When we do a lot of international movements and now the people of Myanmar will say, oh, are we still hoping for international civil society to help, are we? And that's really a huge disappointment when the people of Myanmar felt, you know, we can't really depend on our friends offshore. It seems like our friends offshore are also feeling helpless because their leaders are not doing something that is effective in actions. There's a lot of statements coming out, read beautifully in policies, but in practical reality, there is nothing in evidence to show to us that the military dictatorship will be eliminated out. And and so all of those thoughts, you know, it's not all quite positive emotionally for the people of Myanmar. But, you know, we are stronger, united, and we focus on internal development. So a lot of people are now united and putting their lives up front, defending for their families, defending for their political belief, defending for democracy and human rights, and defending for their country. And so you've got the normal civilians joining People's Defense Forces in Myanmar joining other, you know, um, ethnic revolution leaders to fight against the military dictatorship. And so as a global civil society, I think we really need to give credit to the local Myanmar citizens to bravely going out without any proper arms to prepare themselves to really defend because the Myanmar military is now burning down villages, you know, bombing the mountains and killing the mountain people and raping and killing women and children and all the crimes against humanity are being conducted every day. And yet, I guess we have even gone out of the spotlight now since the Ukraine situation escalated. So you have this global issues when we look at it, and then more and more, we felt our lives are not valued as equally as, let's say, the lives of the Afghanistan or the lives of the Ukrainians. And when such comparison happens, it crushed the souls of activists, you know, uh, because we would hope that the human rights defenders will defend every individual lives, regardless of which country they belong to. Unfortunately, with the whole political situation around the world, uh, even, you know, coming back to New Zealand context, as soon as the Ukraine situation happened, we have the New Zealand government announcing 4,000, you know, emergency like refugee spots for family reunification cases where for us, the Myanmar people, we've been campaigning and we submitted the petition for just 1,000 family refugee, you know, reunification. Another emergency humanitarian category, we still haven't heard back. And, and, and so you have this type of 
governments having to make hard decisions, pick and choose who they wish to create an actions for and who they wish to stand up for. So as an activist, those are the memories and experiences and feelings that I have been facing over the last year, especially more so now. And sometimes it's about feeling how long is it going to take, you know, is it going to be another military dictatorship for another 30 years where business is as usual and you know, my military is backed by China and Russia and then the ASEAN having a lip service and they all carried on. But the daily lives of our Myanmar people are worse off and, and everyday people are dying with poverty, crime, malnutrition, and now the COVID. So there's a lot of worries for the activist and a lot of the Myanmar diaspora groups you know they have to work full-time for their own survival you know meeting their own survival needs but yet they have to now give up all their income to put up the resistance in Myanmar so that people are getting support from the back door which also extremely difficult to send humanitarian aid back inside Myanmar, uh, where you have to, you know, hide everything and trying to get the emergency medical aids or humanitarian food and resources back in Myanmar. So it is a revolution that is a lot harder than what we thought. I think the world leaders could definitely do much better than standing in solidarity or in principles with the people of Myanmar and carry on with their business as usual. And I'm sure that maybe I am a little bit harsh on criticizing the global leaders. But as you and I know, for us who really love the people of Myanmar and know the real suffering of the people of Myanmar, we know how slow the progress is, right? There's no denial about that. But, you know, the campaign even looks very different you know, you look at the the situation in Ukraine and the campaign and everything is all out in public. I know the political complexity is quite different to the position of Ukrainians and the Russians and how the Myanmar situation is. I guess it might be quite different if somebody else has invaded Myanmar rather than the military invade its own country and overthrown the democratically elected government. But we should not treat that differently. So that's my view on Myanmar politics right now. In terms of what am I doing as a civil society, as a former refugee, as a Myanmar-born child, we are continuing to participate in the global campaign, the movements. You know, we do our best in terms of continuing our humanitarian funding for the people of Myanmar. We continue to talk to NUD, the National Unity Government, and I have a very strong engagements and, and, you know, strong relationship with the Ministry for Women, Youth and Children, you know, Minister Susanna Lalasso, she's a very strong advocate for women and children and the families in Myanmar. My experience with engaging with her is that she's very hands-on minister, she's traveling across the country, looking after the people. So I'm very glad that we have a very close relationship with that department. In terms of the international movements, I think we can only join the campaigns, you know, signing signature campaigns and all that, and participating in what is happening with our other activist groups around the world. Bringing our audience back to New Zealand on what are we doing in New Zealand, um, a lot of the Myanmar families, you know, they continue to do fundraising in various ways, like their you know, selling food within the community. They continue to do the food fair. They deliver right through your home. Some people are selling their belongings. A lot of the people are actually donating their own salary. So Myanmar people in New Zealand continue to be proactive in terms of raising funding. At the political and diplomacy level, uh, so my group, the Democracy for Myanmar Working Group, 
So we are the one that really pay attention to political advocacy. What we do is just recently we submitted the oral presentation to the the Parliamentarian Committee for Foreign Affairs, Trades and Defence. We collected over 524,000 signatures requesting New Zealand government to recognise NUG, you know, as a legitimate government of Myanmar. And so we were invited to do an oral presentation to the committee. And so we did. And now we are waiting to hear back from the Parliamentarian Committee on their decisions, which we were told we will hear back in June. However, we were also told that the decisions of the Parliamentarian Committee does not necessarily reflect the decisions of the, the state government, which is decided by the Prime Minister of the day. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it's like, you know, where do you go? What do you do? Even if you go to the top to advocate, there's safe space that the politicians reserve so that their country can carry on putting their national interests at the forefront of the lives of others. And I think we can only have to wait and see what happened. So after that, after we hear back from the Foreign Affairs and Trade, our second petition hearing that we are waiting on is for the 1,000 Burmese refugees for those families who are already New Zealand citizens and living in New Zealand. And again, you know, when I spoke to one of the ministers and then talked to a few politicians, when it comes to the Myanmar situation, the topic that often come up is, oh, you know, New Zealand, New Zealanders themselves are facing lots of homeless issues. We're having shortage of state government, you know, housing, our financial situation to host more refugees and be fully responsible for the new incoming refugees is extremely difficult at the moment, which is understandable. However, there was no reservations when they make a quick announcement for 4,000 Ukrainian refugees. Uh, it's quite sad, like when we have to compare, you know, such situation, because, I mean, our heart go out to the families, the women and children of the Ukraine, because no one's suffering is less than anyone. You know, everyone's suffering is equally important. However, when it comes to politics and how the politicians pick and choose, how many lives they wish to save, which country they will stand up for. That's where the sad story comes in when it comes to international humanitarian and human rights movement. And I think as a civil society, we need to continue pressing on that. Is that as a country, are we only going to help fight with our friends who we call you know, national allies or our country's friends and not help others who we do not deem to be as equally important friend. So it becoming like, how do we avoid the pick and choose process? How do we create a more equitable process when it comes to defending human rights and helping refugees for the countries who are suffering enormously? I don't know, with the COVID and the daily lives of the citizens of each country, they have their own problems, you know, and, and we can completely empathize with that. Uh, even myself, you know, uh, meeting the, the demand of the daily life expenses in New Zealand is quite high. And so how do we as citizens keep up with meeting the needs of our own as well as having that conscious mind on what can we do to help those who are absolutely vulnerable and have no other means to even, you know, dare to dream, survive for the next day. And yeah, so I think it's really important for us to carry on with these conversations. Why do we have foreign policy in each country? Is it purely for trade? And also as civil society, where are we at when it comes to international defending international human rights, protecting our own very principles of democracy? And where are we at? You know, we spent so many decades developing the United Nations, developing policies. We promised each other that there will not be any more Rwanda cases or Bosnia cases 
where the genocide happened right under our nose and we lived through our lives with regrets. And, and so, you know, there's a pledge done at the United Nations that when it comes to saving and protecting the civilians' lives against their own oppressor, which is a state government, then we as an international civil society have a stronger power or be in a stronger position, united as one, to fight against those regimes, those abuses, those perpetrators. But I think at the moment it is all in theory in the textbook. Uh, no one really exercised what we have promised yet. And I hope that the world leaders, when they hear my podcast, is to really think about not just trying to fix the problem in its own backyard, but trying to fix the global problem together as a whole, as a community, because we are all human in this planet. We all share this, you know, the global land, and we are all brothers and sisters in the name of Christ. And so I think when one country is really vulnerable and are not in position to defend for themselves, we utterly rely on our neighboring countries or other countries who are in position to make a difference. And if we are unable to rely on the global leaders to defend for us, then what hope does the Myanmar citizen have? You know, and I think we need to really think about that and think about what we can do on a daily basis. I think for Myanmar people, at the moment, there are two pressing issues that we would like the world to know. The first one is the total energy and gas negotiations where the French government now need to decide when total exit the whole gas and energy business with Myanmar military, what will happen to the share of, you know, $250 million. So what the Myanmar citizens are requesting is that any money from the total, they call it an MOGE, that's a money not going to them but to be in a, a freeze account, or they, they call it the ESCO account so that the Myanmar military dictators won't take that money. If they are benefiting from this total energy, you know, what will happen is the money will be used to buy arms, which means there will be, it's a blood money. Uh, it goes against the lives of the Myanmar people. So that's what we can do at the moment is to do research on the total energy and convince the French government to decide not to release that fund to the Myanmar military dictatorship but to work closely with the energy. The other pressing matter right now is the ASEAN Humanitarian Assistance to Myanmar. They call it AHA, A-H-A, Humanitarian Assistance. So, you know, they are talking point where the ASEAN Humanitarian Assistance to Myanmar will be working directly with the Myanmar military dictatorship. Of course, there are safety precautions in place, but what the Myanmar activists are saying is that the ASEAN Humanitarian Assistance Committee will work directly with the humanitarian agencies on the ground in the border so that the humanitarian assistance and all the, you know, the aids will actually get to the people and not be dictated by the military dictatorship. So that's something that we can look into as a civil society, putting more pressure on AHA Association to work closely with NUG and other humanitarian agencies on the ground. And the last point that we want to let the world know is, you know, Myanmar people are suffering on a daily basis right now. Situation escalates even worse every day. We are no longer in the spotlight. We would like the world to know to continue to be interested about us and really think about, you know, where Myanmar people will be in the next couple of years, the future of the Myanmar people. We have equal rights to live. We have equal rights to live life with dignity, safe, and have the opportunity to hope for the future of our children. And right now we need the, the help of our friends offshore to do their best to press their government. Your government is only as strong as you let them to be. So we don't want you to lose your civil rights. You have the rights to make a difference. You elect this government to represent your voice. 
So if your government is not representing your voice, then there are things that you can do and we encourage you to explore those options and really look into your foreign policy and look into what your government is doing for Myanmar and where are the foreign policy budget placed for the Myanmar humanitarian assistance. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and, and you've covered so much. And it's actually, it's kind of sad to listen to it because it's so true. Like, I wish I could pick one thing you said and go, oh, well, you're being a bit unfair, but you're not. You're actually being incredibly kind in how you're saying it. But it is it is just, you know, a reminder of how much the international community is failing and how much our politicians around the world are failing and how cheap lives have become and how greed and money is driving everything. And when you said you were doing your thesis on R2P, I, I'm like, I've given up on the UN. Like, I, I just... As an institution, uh, I have just given up all hope. You know, R2P is is great on paper, you know, um, but it's used as a political tool. You know, human rights are weaponized and it's it's horrible to see. But I think, I mean, to try and uplift this a little bit, what you're doing and what the people in New Zealand are doing, it's incredibly hopeful, you know, to, to get the number of signatures that you've got is incredible. And I can only imagine the work that must have gone in to get that many people to sign on to your petitions. But also I can't help thinking that we see New Zealand that this is a really progressive country, like one of the most progressive countries. So it's really disheartening when you say that like a thousand refugees is all their, their quota like I mean we would expect them to be one of the leading countries in terms of human rights and resettlement that that's really that's really disappointing I, I always picture New Zealand as really progressive country right sorry so correction to that is the actual quota refugee is 1,400 quota refugee that's what the country is committing to but since the COVID you know we put the program on hold so we only allowed a few cases into the country. But since the revolution, our Myanmar citizens in New Zealand are desperate for help. So we decided as DFM that at least we will request for 1,000 family members, immediate family members, which means your immediate family, like parents, wife, husband, son, daughter, you know, in, in that tier, immediate family tier category. And we are only asking for 1,000. And even that, you know, we have to really push for it and still there's no answer at the moment, and which is really disappointing. But as soon as the, you know, when the Afghani situation hit, there was, I think, 370 immediate rescue mission. Um, so that was immediate. And then there was, uh, when the Ukrainian situation happened, the government made an announcement of 4,000 very quickly within a couple of weeks. Yeah, and now with collecting 524,000, I mean, it was a hard work and a lot of people around the world with this massive hope, you know, join forces. So I, I think we have the, we are, we are still one of the biggest signature in the world at the moment with 524,000 signatures. But the way it has been handled, the way that the government still hasn't give us any answer yet. So I think, I hope you will invite me to come back again and talk about, you know, what was the answer of that campaign? Because we're still waiting. As we progress into this whole revolutional thing, yeah, I have to say that the Myanmar military must be laughing their lungs out at the moment or be happy that, you know, that, that we are quite disappointed and really sad about how our efforts, our joint forces and our solidarity actions has not been acknowledged as much as we would like to. And I think we need to think about how do we lift up those. To bring the positivity is that it make our people a lot more united, I guess. You know, inside Myanmar, people realize that they need to take the matters in their own hand but then that caused the civil war. So if the world really get involved, we won't have a civil war, you know. There will be no more innocent lives being, you know, risked in the process of defending for themselves. So the positive things are that it's really good to see the love and support that we all have for our people back home 
like people, Myanmar people around the world are doing their absolute best to be right beside this revolution, to put up the resistance and continue to financially support the national unity government and the people of Myanmar to carry on with this revolution until the brighter days come or until the military is kicked out. Um, so those are the positive things. It will be very helpful if we have our international friends to carry on with the noises and, and do more campaign. But of course, the COVID is really difficult for group gatherings and protests. Yeah, I am sorry. It's kind of like a little bit of a sad mood to talk about politics, but there's nothing happy to talk about right now when it comes to Myanmar. You know, there's nothing to celebrate. Our country haven't celebrated our Burmese New Year. We haven't put up any celebration at all. All of our fun activities are on hold until the day we get our freedom from military dictatorship. And so with this heavy heart, yeah, I do apologize to our listeners. The reality, you know, I'm carrying the voices of the people of Myanmar, and this is how we feel. And this is how hurt we are at the moment especially when our lives are disregarded compared to the lives of others. And we need help. We need you to restore our spirits. We can't do it alone. We need you to tell us that we are not the forgotten sisters and brothers. We need you to let us know that you are with us and that you will not put up with human right abuses in the world. If we let this military dictator win, and they carry on in the next so many years as a country leader, and there is going to be a business as usual. All of us, every country leaders, are considered to be part of the team because they enable it, you know. So then there will be more copycats. You never know who exists in your country. Sometimes we think about in New Zealand, what if we have a coup in New Zealand? Who do we rely on? So, you know, of course, we hope there's no coup in any other country. But if there is, then what do we do? So, yeah, it's about putting yourself in other people's shoes. And how do we collectively defend human rights? And how do we keep up with democracy? You know, we defended and we worked so hard in the past to bring democracy to light, to bring international human rights and justice to light. But yet we have not seen the practical side of all the principles and global justice system that we implemented. We have not practiced it in reality. And, and I think Myanmar is a very good case study for us in the modern world. And I'm worried about my daughter. You know, I'm worried about these young children that's going to grow up. This is it. Our generation need to do better to restore that humanity, to restore faith to restore what is right and what is just. If our generation let things roll over, then there is nothing defend our future generations to come. That's our belief. How um, aware do you find people in New Zealand about the situation in Myanmar when you, when you bring up the conversation, the topic and awareness of it? Is it well known within, within your country or is it... A, a lesson that you keep having to tell people? The people, it depends on who you talk to. I guess most people in my network are fully aware of the Myanmar situation. If you're talking about the general public, not many people know about it, you know. They will know more about the Ukraine and Afghanistan than know about Myanmar. So there is still kind of this lack of awareness we were in the spotlight a few times and I got, you know, emails and phone calls and messages from friends. Who were like, oh, we had no idea. We read about it or we saw you on the news. Yeah, I would say New Zealanders could be a bit more informed about the world. Only those who are interested in international topic would know more about it. We are a small country. We are battling with our own local problems. You know, at the moment, we have homeless crisis and state housing shortage crisis and then the COVID and unemployment. Yeah, so it, it's hard to say that the people of New Zealand are fully aware about Myanmar. And when we campaign, 
you know, people are so confused as well because now that there's a military dictatorship, but people are so caught up in the Rohingya topic. You know what I mean? So it's, oh, you know, none of you are better anyway. When the Myanmar government was there, you know, you guys were not fair on the Rohingya situation. So that's another problem we've got to deal with is that when there's a political discussion, people are more aware of what has happened to our Rohingya brothers and sisters than what are we suffering as a country right now under the military dictatorship. So that whole complexity make it more difficult for us to have a fair discussion about Myanmar. Yeah. I think one of the things I wanted to touch on, and I was, uh, as I say, it's, it's totally up to you if you want to answer this, but I know I, I met you obviously some time ago, a few months back. And at the time, I remember there being kind of, and I've seen this in many groups that I've talked to, diaspora groups in different parts of the world, that there's lots of different groups operating in countries, sometimes working together, often not working together. And it's not to kind of dismiss people or say someone's right or wrong, but I guess people don't appreciate that it can be so difficult even to unite outside of the country and never mind those inside. But I feel people inside are far more united than some people outside. And even earlier, I, I spoke with somebody and they, they were talking about, you know, that people in America who, who were so supportive of, of the democracy movement in the past won't touch it now because they feel let down by Aung San Suu Kyi and they, they don't know what to do anymore. And I feel like people keep forgetting the people because that's who this should always have been about and should continue to be about. It's not about one politician, one political party. It's, it's about helping 54 million people. I would just be interested in your insights to those dynamics and how difficult it is to kind of work in these environments and stay motivated when, when there's so many things pulling people apart. Yeah, thank you for asking that question, Suzanne. It is a sensitive matter. But hey, let us open the can of worms and really talk about it. You know, our transparency and honesty is the only way forward if we are to be united as one to fight against this regime. I grew up overseas. You know, I was a child refugee outside of Myanmar since the age of like about seven and then coming to New Zealand and grow up since the age of 13. For me, there is no bias, you know, emotionally and mentally. There's nothing holding me back on making me pick and choose which group to work with. So you have my generation who are like the pure-minded and just think about like what you said. Think about the people, the 54 million people in Myanmar. What do we do to defend for the human rights? What do we do to eliminate the military dictatorship? So you have my generation, we call the Generation Z, um, who are really, you know, maybe I'm older than Generation Z actually. <laughs> That's how old I am. <laughs> so we have us who really focus on the core principles of where we should go and who's our common enemy. What we struggle with this revolution, and we found it really difficult or frustrating working with the older generation, especially those who call themselves as the 88 generation. So that was the, you know, the kind of a, the first human rights and democracy revolution movement in Myanmar in the 88. So we have those pro-democracy activists who left the country. And then thereafter, we got more and more refugees and migrants exiting Myanmar and coming to New Zealand. And what I found throughout this movement is people started to have different opinions and they become more passive, like what you commented before. Some people were really disappointed with Aung San Suu Kyi and how things played out. Some people say, no, Mother Aung San Suu Kyi would never betray the people, including the Rohingya people, but there must be, you know, her hands were tied. It was a military controlling. So there's all these conflict happening amongst ourselves as well, is, is how do we move forward together as one? And I guess it's more visible in foreign country that Myanmar diaspora groups is that people are so different and they carry such history when they leave Myanmar that they continue with that mentality or those, those biased views and their belief. I was so furious in New Zealand because 
not only did I have to deal with the sexism, <laughs> yes, you know, and the age discrimination, I have to deal with all this, you know, undermining by the elder generations about, oh, what do these young people know attitudes, you know. And so being a female and being the youngest and being an activist, that's really doesn't go too well with a lot of the political activists from Myanmar, right? So the male dominance in the political activism space is so huge that the voices of the women, the voices of the youth are almost unheard of in a diaspora group. You're giving it a position to talk for like five minutes. That's it. But when come to a real discussion, uh, strategizing what type of political movement we're going to do, all of that, the elder generation find it really difficult to take on the advice from a younger generation, especially female. Now, if you remember, there's a wrong revolution in Myanmar where they have all these skirt raising. And, and so Myanmar revolution is not just against the Myanmar military dictatorship, but it is also put a spotlight on us, the, the feminist movement in Myanmar in a much stronger position. So you see a lot of the women and young women coming out, you know, protesting, defending for human rights, women rights, and defending for their country. It's a lot more visible than in the past. So, you know, it's really exciting to see how groups and uh, gender equality is organized and the revolution is moving forward, introducing how, how the people of Myanmar, how the young people see themselves and where they want to see the country moving forward. That's a beautiful thing about this revolution, which is a highlight of all of this revolution right now. And so for me, like in Myanmar, people are catching up really fast and young people have much more power to make a movement because young people are much more educated in the modern education system. They know more about how the political activity and mobility works. They know how to engage with the global civil society. So the younger generation have a stronger connection with their friends offshore than compared to the older generations who are stuck in their own cultural and many different biased views. So we have this internal issues happening as well, which we are fighting, you know, coming and, and standing up for our rights. So for me, um, in New Zealand, we have a lot of former refugees and former, you know, politicians who found it really difficult to take instructions from me. And their comment often go back to, oh, she was only a baby during the 88 uprising. You know, what does she know about Myanmar politics? And who is she to tell us uh, what to do? But when it comes to the real work, talking to politicians, strategizing international media, strategizing how to conduct this type of interviews, they've got no one else but to come and ask me to do it or ask the young people to take over. So we're, we're having these problems. <laughs> and I think that's what the, is finding difficult is the Myanmar diaspora groups are also ethnically based. So we have a lot of ethnic minority refugees who suffered enormously under the military dictatorship as well as under the nationalist movement, you know, the Myanmarism or the Burmanism. And, and so there's a lot of distrust between ethnic minority groups and the Burmese. Majority of the political movements started by the Burmans or, or, or the, the majority ethnic group called the Burmese or the Burmans. And, and so you have this conflict between the former politicians or the student activists in the 80s, who are the Burmese, started this political dialogue and advocacy movements. Then they asked the ethnic minority groups to join in. And the problem with the ethnic minority group is they're so united amongst themselves, but they're finding really difficult to join the Burmans. 
when it comes to political dialogue or political advocacy movement, because they are so afraid of being used and abused, just like their experiences back home. And so, you know, that, that's a challenge. And, and as the time progresses more, what I am witnessing in New Zealand is the ethnic minority groups will work really hard amongst themselves, fundraising, and they will send money back to their villages or their ethnic groups for resistance and for humanitarian aid. But they will say absolutely minimum or almost not participating in the Myanmar political movement. And that's huge, right? So then we put the human rights and, you know, think about the 54 million people in Myanmar. But with, within my research, there is so much damage done in history where the ethnic minority group trusted the Myanmar government. By the end of the day, they witnessed that only the Burmese or the Burmans benefited from any political positions and the benefits and privileges that goes with it. And the ethnic minority groups are left behind are being underprivileged or disadvantaged. And so because of those history, you know, that's still carrying on here and offshore in foreign countries because we, none of us have had the opportunity to come together and talk and heal and talk about how do we move forward together as a collective community, let's say in New Zealand or in the US. Everybody still operate in silos, you know, in their own groups. And that's why you see a little bit more divisions within the groups. Now, so you have the ethnic minority groups, but when it comes to a massive protest, you know, the ethnic minority groups will come and protest with their flags. And for me, as being a Burmese or the Burmans, always have to reassure the true representation, you know, voice of the ethnic minority groups so that they can voice for themselves. So throughout this movement, I've always requested the Rohingya people to participate and involve, and they did join and they talk about it because we have a common enemy now. And if Myanmar have democracy and human rights, then we have the opportunity to discuss any other differences that exist between each community or between each ethnic groups. Yeah. So it's going to be an ongoing challenge, I think, uh, with the Myanmar diaspora groups. But the beautiful thing right now happening is in Australia, New South Wales University, they created this, you know, diplomacy training for Myanmar diaspora groups in Australia. And now they are developing a program as a joint program with New Zealand. So we have something to look forward to at the moment. And I'm hoping there's something great come out of it. Um, so. Uh, I'll be traveling to Australia in June to attend that forum and to develop this New Zealand-Australia joint diplomacy training on, um, you know, human rights and democracy for Myanmar. So that's something to stay tuned and, yeah, look out for. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. But obviously that's people outside of the country, isn't it? And I'm just linking back into what we were talking about just in terms of internally the future and the transition to democracy, when the military is overthrown and the desire for federal states, how easy you think it might be for those kind of different ethnic divisions to come together and the future of Myanmar politically and democratically, basically. Yeah, we've always thought about it. Like for me, being a Burman, you know, in the Burmese, our main focus is democracy and human rights because we see the humanity as a whole. And I think we lack the thoughts of federal democracy and what that means. But with this revolution, the term federal democracy is a forefront of any democracy or human rights movement. And one very great example that I've experienced in New Zealand is when I spoke to one of the ethnic minority groups, the group leader straight away asked me, well, Tinmama, you established a group called Democracy for Myanmar Working Group. Can we ask why you didn't create a federal democracy for Myanmar working group? 
And I was really shocked with that question because I thought, oh my God, because for the Burmans, it probably never really triggered in our mind as a top priority of the word federalism, right? But that's what the ethnic minority people have always been fighting for. So that was my learning curve in New Zealand. But DFM by then is always known and everybody said, oh, federal democracy go from Myanmar is too long to stick to DFM. I said, okay, cool, we'll stick to DFM. But yes, I think Everyone in Myanmar, all the ethnic minority groups are fighting for federal democracy. What that means is they will have an equal opportunity to represent themselves and defend for themselves in their own territory and have the right to participate politically. And I believe that with the national unity government, that is their priority, is to create the federalism. And during El San Suu Kyi time, she did try to you know, engage with ethnic minority groups. And the term federal democracy has been the forefront of her campaign and discussion with the ethnic minority groups. And that really pissed the Myanmar military off too. You know, in Myanmar history, whenever there was a federal democracy discussion happened, what it does is instead of bringing a unity, they found it was very difficult to bring the equity amongst all the ethnic minority groups and the demands that each ethnic community might have for themselves or for their territory and their people. And I think that's going to take time for our country to really negotiate, engage, and really develop a system that gives the federal democracy a true justice of its foundation, you know. But that is the only future in Myanmar. If we overthrow the Myanmar military dictatorship, the only way to move forward in Myanmar as a union state is that there is a federal democracy in Myanmar and that the federalism is going to be discussed strategically and carefully and making sure that all the ethnic minority groups' voices are not only heard, but to put in practical forms in terms of developing a federal state, developing federal policy, and by including, you know, the diversity and inclusion will be the forefront of Myanmar development in the future. And the federalism discussion within the Myanmar diaspora group, we have not had any opportunity yet, with all honesty, to really talk about that because people are really focused on how do we provide emergency humanitarian aid so that our families can survive another day? How do we rescue those whose village has been burned? So at the moment, we are in an ad hoc response mode and none of us have had the opportunity to talk about it. And sometimes it could be like, oh, you know, they're dreaming to talk about the federalism right now when they are still under the military dictatorship. It's a chicken and egg situation right now, but I think it, it is a really important point that we need to start talking about it because without discussing those, our people will continue to be divided and there's always this doubt in their mind. And even though we are united as forefront to fight for the common enemy, there is this doubt in the back of the, our ethnic minority people's mind that the Burmese or the Burmans or the Burmese Burman lead government is not to be trusted. And I think we need to really work on that, not just campaigning about Myanmar democracy and human rights right now, but to put more time talking about what does it look like in practice? What is the federalism? And how do we rebuild those trust uh, amongst the Myanmar diaspora group? There's so much to be done, to be honest, within the community. We need a lot of community engagement sealing the gap between the elders and the younger generation in this revolution. We need to educate our elders about, you know, feminism and how the young girls' voices in politics matter. Uh, we also need to talk about building unity with different ethnic minority groups. How do we build trust? Because end of the day, I strongly believe that the people offshore, like the Myanmar diaspora groups, in a much more you know, privileged position 
to learn now to strategize and to develop the working progress on federalism, where Myanmar people in Myanmar are facing with how to survive another day. That's why it is really important that the Myanmar diaspora group build a really close connection with Myanmar politics. And there's a lot of brain drain, you know, in Myanmar. A lot of the highly educated people left Myanmar over the years. And, and because Myanmar politics has always been tricky and complicated and intelligent people have always been assassinated, we are losing honest and capable politicians. And so we end up relying heavily on competent and capable politicians, which could be only a handful. And so we have this younger generation who are coming up and playing politics. And I think it's really important that we start putting spotlights on Myanmar diaspora groups and activists who show strong interest in developing a federal state in Myanmar. And how do we recruit all those Myanmar activists internationally so that when the military is actually overthrown, like myself and other activists around the world can participate in Myanmar politics, you know, in a proactive role and with a position to make a difference. Yeah, it will take time, but it's so worth it. And we cannot start that step one unless we eliminate the Myanmar military dictatorship. So the moment the dictatorship is gone, the moment Myanmar military played no part in politics and within the parliament, that is the moment where dialogue can start to develop. And we need a lot of help with, from our international civil society who are experts to come as advisors and consultants. We need different countries, especially New Zealand government, to go and provide lots of training, you know. And that's why we value these relationships because relationship just doesn't occur immediately. Relationship takes time. And I think we... Myanmar communities and like people like yourselves with the civil society, we need to build these strong bonds, strong relationship between country to country, government to government, civil societies and civil society to really start developing it and make it possible for Myanmar to be hopeful. Because at the moment, Myanmar military is killing the activists, you know, political activists are being captured, tortured and killed. NUG ministers are hiding in the jungle and at any opportunity they get, they will be eliminated. So you can see that a lot of the Myanmar politicians and talented people are headhunted down by the Myanmar military. And then if they kill them all, then there's no one can lead this country. And so there's a lot of problem in my country that, that, you know, we really, uh, it's going to take time to heal, to develop. That's what I think. Did you have any last message for the people of Myanmar who, who will be listening to this that are in the country trying to survive, holding on every day? It's been a long time. You know, it's over a year. And when you think about it, what would, what would your words be to those people? Um, I just would like to let, you know, all the, our country men and women know that they are not alone, that they still have us and we will continue to advocate for their cause. And with that, we are not just going to advocate in principle. We are putting all our resources together. We are sharing the grief. We are sharing the hardship. All of us in foreign country, you know, we got rid of our privileges by budgeting really tight and donating everything we have so that whatever we have, we are sharing with you all. And this fight, hopefully, is not going to be much longer if our global leaders hear our voices and will decide to do something. But right now, thank you so much for all your hard work, all your solidarity, fighting for your cause, fighting for your future generations, fighting to defend for our country. And we are all with you, you know, we are with you and we will continue to be until 
we see our country free from dictatorship until our country and our children have the opportunity to live life to the fullest potential, just like any other countries that we look up to. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.